Great. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Vanguard, the Consortium for Indo-Pacific Researchers podcast. This is a continuation of a series with the Consortium's military history team, where we discuss namely the military history in the Indo-Pacific region. Thank you for joining us today, and I am Brendan Donnelly, a U.S. military member in the Air Force and a fellow with the Consortium for Indo-Pacific Researchers. I have the great pleasure of discussing with other members of the military history team, which includes, of course, our team leader, Christopher Kulikowski and Jose Custodio. Uh, Christopher is the director of the Wisconsin Veterans Museum in Madison, Wisconsin, and is a senior fellow with the consortium. Uh, he has written and spoken extensively on military history from 1775 to the present and is the author of several books on the American Civil War and, the World, War and World War II in the Pacific. His study of the 1941 uh, to 42 uh, Philippine campaign titled Last Stand on the Time, which just came out in 2016. Also joining me is Jose, is Jose Custodio, who is a historian and a defense analyst. Uh, he has a postgraduate in history from the University of the Philippines. And additionally, Jose occasionally teaches uh, history and political science, comments on security developments in the, in the Philippines and in the South China Sea. Uh, like Jose, uh, like Chris, Jose has also written countless articles and co-authored books in, on some of these issues as well. So, gentlemen, thank you for joining me today. Great to see you, Brendan. Great to see you all. Great to see you all. Uh, so, to set the stage of kind of the continuation of what we've talked about before, we've we've discussed geography in previous podcasts, um, but kind of to get a general gist of what we're talking about is. Uh, is the tyranny of geography that grips the Indo-Pacific. Uh, to kind of encapsulate what we've been, what we are dealing with is the Indo-Pacific houses two oceans, thousands of islands and 91 square miles of, of ocean landscape. So of course we are gonna be diving deeper into that um, uh, just past the sheer numbers. But gentlemen, I am eager to get to, into this conversation as I'm sure that both of you guys are as well. So if, without further ado, I will pitch the first question to the both of you. Uh, and then whoever would like to take it from there on, please. The floor is yours afterwards. So the first question, of course, is how does ge geography play a significant role in the Indo-Pacific region in relation to the first and second island chains? Well, you've probably heard the old, you know, the old cliche that geography is destiny. And if you look at, uh, if you look at, at the most of the major players in the Indo-Pacific region, and even look at the military history of the Indo-Pacific region, you'll see a lot of the same geographic factors or situations come up again and again. Um, I'll, there, we could do. There's a lot that can be said. Um, I'll, one of the ones that jumps out to me immediately is the fact that you look at China and China throughout its history, both um, to the north and to the east has been surrounded primarily by enemies, has been boxed in by the first island chain to the east, the Russia and kind of the vast steppes of Central Asia to the west and northwest, and really been hemmed in by the Himalayas to the west and kind of southwest, which is why Burma, the Burma Road in World War II, just like today, Myanmar becomes a strategic country, you know, strategic country in that part of the world. And then in China to the east, you know, if, if you control the islands off the coast of China, and by that I, I include what's known as the first island chain, you have a way of penning in China. And it's no, it's no accident that the Japanese, when they invaded in 1937, conquered the ports on, the, on the China's east coast. And then you get to the first island chain and you deal with uh, Jose's home country, the Philippines, where it's really a, very much a crossroads of Asia. You look at uh, the intersection, even going back centuries, how the intersection of different cultures come together. Um, you know, Manila makes Manila one of the great ports. And then the uh, kind of the, the way the islands to the south of it channel shipping lanes and therefore also strategic communication corridors. And that's all before you actually reach to the vast expanse of the Pacific from there. Because people forget how big this is, 5,000 miles from Nila to Honolulu, and it, another 2,000 miles to San Francisco for U.S. listeners. So you, it's, it's a big area, and it's something that needs to be kept in mind. And this, you know, wherever you look in the world, when you think about it from a geostrategic standpoint, geography really matters. But in the Indo-Pacific in particular, 
the geography, unlike borders in Europe that move, the geography in the Pacific, just by virtue of what it is, hasn't really changed a lot and continues to be, those factors continue to be very important. And that's just the very, very barrister. There are other areas I haven't even touched, the Korean Peninsula, the Kura Isles, the Japanese home islands, things like that. We could talk about that later. But I want to let Jose kind of jump in here too. Thank you, Chris. Um, well, of course, um, uh, um, I've come from the Philippines, as um, Chris has said, and um, uh, we, sh um, of course, uh, we share the Philippines shares the same, uh, the same situation as Korea does, in a sense that we are like frontline states. You know, um, being geography has put us uh, right smack in the middle of of everything. You know, and historically, that's why the Philippines and Korea have suffered so many invasions, you know. Um, I'm not going to speak in Korea's behalf. I would just say that, for example, the Philippines is like the doormat of the world, you know, because everybody just like, you know, cleans their feet on it, you know, runs over it, you know. So uh, during the uh, during the colonial period, of course, the Spaniards um, came here, they, they came to the Philippines, and then they just like colonized it. And then Fast, uh, fast forward several hundred years later. Of course, the Chinese, uh, the Japanese, and there were other, like the Dutch, they also wanted to get the Philippines because it was right smack in the middle of access to, for example, the China, uh, China. You know, um, the Spaniards had their eyes on China. That's why they want they they they. It, that's why the Philippines became an uh, an appeal uh, a a strategic uh, um, possession of theirs, and then. Fast forward, you have the United States. The United States comes in in 1898. You know, then um, a missed opportunity to have an earlier alliance have, uh, was uh, occurred between the Philippines and the United States. We had a short war between the between, uh, between the two. Uh, not exactly a short war; it's a long war actually. And um, the reason why the United States entered and conquered the Philippines was precisely again you had access to. Asia, you know, it was right smack in the middle of everything. Then a few decades later, uh, you had Japan, you know, um, come in. Why? Because we were in the middle of uh, uh, where all the oil and the rubber was, which was uh, Indonesia, you know, where we're like, we were like, we were this, um, this uh, obstacle. Then we fast forward again. Um, uh, after the Second World War, the United States, uh, sets up one of its, I mean, sets up the largest military installations outside of uh, the United States in the Philippines. You know, uh, if I'm correct, Clark Air Base was historically the largest military uh, base of the U.S. Right. Uh, outside, outside. Okay, so again, this was um, precisely to hem in to contain uh, communist uh, expansion at the uh, during the Cold War. Then, you know, um, certain uh, nationalist uh, tendencies, you had the, you had the, um, uh, you had the uh, Chinese come in, you know, and the Philippines, unfortunately, is part of the first island chain, you know, um, and that's why uh, we always, I don't know, the tyranny of uh, geography is really keenly felt by the Philippines, you know, um, whether or not we're in alliance, whether we try to be neutral, you know, we're like, we're like Belgium. <laughs> so we, we want to be neutral, you know, but you know, this, this powers behind us, they're so bad, they don't want to leave us alone. That, that's us, you know, unlike Sweden, Sweden was like up in the north, you know, who wants to go up, you know, nobody wants to go up to the north, so cold. So, but Belgium is right in the middle, you know, Philippines is also right in the middle of everybody. So, so maybe there will be an alien invasion one of these uh, years, and they'd still find the Philippines in the middle of everything. So that's how that's, and, and I think Korea is the same thing, you know. It's 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 uh, at least the Koreans learned, you know, because now they have a powerful armed force, you know. But in the case of the Philippines, you know, um, I don't know. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, and I, I also wanted to add in a couple of my own comments on this one as too as well, because um, I, I know that Chris, Jose, you you and I have uh, we have all read the document, and I'm sure a lot of people have read the publication of. There were some U.S. Uh, senior leadership saying that there was going to be a Chinese invasion on Taiwan in by 2025. So I'm not going to comment on whether or not that is true or that's 100% going to happen. But it sounds like a lot of the scholarship is talking about 
some kind of Chinese aggression, I'll just say within this decade. I mean, we're, we're towards the beginning of the 2020s, so let's just say this decade. Um, I wanted to throw that out there, but then also there was, there was something that Chris mentioned uh, about kind of the diverse uh, geography and kind of alluded to multiple different countries, and I wanted to throw that as kind of a basis as well. So, of course, you have uh, different environments, not just the scope of the ocean, but also this is a, uh, I guess the tyranny would be any force that is going to be operating in Australia or operating in the Philippines, Indonesia, South Korea, Japan is going to have to deal with a lot of different areas. So to include jungles, uh, tropic areas, plains, forests, deserts. And even if we went up towards kind of where Alaska and, and Russia meet, we're looking at Arctic seas. So I think that's something that really hits home for me. And especially, I think, what really should be for the Department of Defense for the United States side, at least something that is a almost clearly that's where tyranny comes from for geography is it's not like some other theaters where it's we only have to re really worry about plains or mountains, um, but we have to worry about all these different environments that require different um, pieces of equipment, different ships, uh, different even even different aircraft uh, to actually go across these different these different areas. And so I think that's where the tyranny really comes up for me. Um, and then second point on that about the first the first island chain uh, is something that I find a little bit interesting is that China is currently developing military technology with the specific idea of taking the first island chain about basically controlling that area. Uh, and that is where I think tyranny comes in is, again, is if the Chinese control the first island chain, uh, if, if we do see that aggression, that then provides an even larger uh, complication for the United States or for the coalition allies uh, in the region to then combat even farther out into the second island chain, because uh, that is something that is a current developing um, uh, conversation with the, United, with the US and the allies as well. Um, so, I guess did you did anybody have any points on anything like that, or I can ask my next question. I think I think you've raised some good points on that, and I, I with regard to the two island chains, for to illustrate what you're talking about, in some ways, what China is planning is the reverse of what Japan planned in World War II, where if you look at the defense zones that they created, they actually had three defense zones. The one was to the east with the Marshalls and the Gilberts and places like that. Um, and then the what they called the absolute national defense zone, we know is the second island chain, the Marianas and down to the Carolines and things like that. And then the last one was the what we know is the first island chain. And of course, the United States and allies pushed west across and beat those successive lines of defense. The Chinese are looking to go the other way. But by studying what happened in World War II, you get a sense of if you lose the first island chain, just like in Japan's case, they lost the second island chain, their front line slipped back a good 700 miles at that point. So if you lose the first island chain or even crack the first island chain, you know, you, you lose a lot of, now granted it's all water, but that's one of the other things about Pacific geography. The Pacific is not like any other place the United States has ever fought. And island possession of island bases, because of the nature of the, it's not like land warfare, you know, the Pacific, the vastness of the Pacific, possession of land bases and island bases becomes of paramount importance. And you see in Hawaii, Guam, to even today, you look at the chain of bases around the Pacific Rim, and you see that that importance. And to illustrate that, you just got to look at the Pacific campaign. The Pacific War of World War II is probably the most recent example, but that illustrates exactly your point, Brendan, and why why a forward defense for the United States and why a forward presence for the United States and and its allies is so important. Well, Nikkei, of course, yeah, oh, sorry, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Um, just to add to that, uh, what uh, was being discussed, you know, like um, I, I saw a, a reference to logistics here. Okay, that's why um, in the Philippines right now, we have uh, Lloyd Austin in the Philippines today, at, at this very moment, and they're discussing 
EDCA, which is uh, the um, are the, the visiting partners agreement and the mutual defense treaty and all the other uh, accompanying uh, uh, agreements because um, the the EDCA uh, I mentioned it, which is enhanced defense uh, corruptive agreement cooperative agreement where wherein the objective is to um, to create uh, to, to to get Philippine approval for five additional sites where the U.S. can reposition um, logistics, you know, uh, or to have uh, temporary uh, locations for exercises, for stationing troops, you know. So that that then shows you that the concern, for example, for the United States is um, unlike in Korea, wherein you have uh, a strong U.S. and Korean presence there, you know, and and I would say a an active. Uh, mutual defense. Uh, I would uh, uh, an active treaty between the two, which is uh, which is uh, real in all senses, you know, because uh, Koreans have a strong military, so the United States. But in the case of the Philippines, you're talking about a big hole in the in the first island chain, which is the Philippines. It not only is the military weak, you know, the the political um, infrastructure itself, the political, uh, the uh, setup there is also weak and compromised, you know, and uh, non, and the best example of that was none other than the Duterte administration. So you have that gaping hole, you know, in your forward line of defense, what are you going to do about it? So that's why we have all of these high level meetings between the current uh, Marcos administration, which has some um, um, shown to be willing, it's shown itself to be willing to to accede to American requests for additional um, um, staging of areas or staging areas in the Philippines. Yeah, back to you, Brendan. Well, so I think I think you actually just hit on the point. It, you you led into the point that I was trying to make perfectly. Uh, and even though that Grant, another fellow of the consortium, isn't here, I have to put in a plug because he loves talking about the forward defense and the control of islands in terms of land-based air power. And I know you guys are probably smiling just because uh, he always talks about land-based air power. And of course, with the Philippines, um, like the United States currently has land-based air power out in Hawaii, out in Guam, uh, in Korea, and in Japan. Realistically, the Philippines, as you, as you just said, that is kind of the gap is we don't have a significant presence of land-based air power in the Philippines. And that, and that does leave us uh, kind of out to dry a little bit because if, if, if we don't have that one gap, um, as I was, I just read, reread Sun Tzu, but he always says, always attack the enemy at the weakest point in the Philippines right now is the weakest point in where our offenses are, um, or even defenses. Sorry. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to hit on, because Jose, when you were talking before, you mentioned uh, the containment of, of communism before, and this is that uh, I wanted to bring up just kind of like the containment idea again. Because um, I, I can't talk about containment without talking about the Spratly Islands or the Woody Islands uh, in the South China Sea. So that's where I might go a little bit off. Uh, but this, the South China Sea to me is so important because it also includes uh, the economic zones and just uh, how every country in the South China Sea or around the South China Sea has a conflict with China with the Spratly Islands in their economic zones. So that was another thing that I wanted to bring up as the tyranny of geography is... Uh, we are facing a, or the adversary in this, in, in this example, which is China, is not only uh, in their mainland, but they are creating geography, which then provides even more consternation in the area as well. So that was, a, that was another two points that I wanted to bring up. But, I think you're right. You know, the points you make about creating the islands, in some ways, what we've been talking about, about the vast expanse of the Pacific, is all a micro version of that is in the South China Sea and the position jockeying for position, not just with the People's Republic of China, but also with the Philippines, with some of the other claimants in that area, not to mention the Taiwanese government as well. And so you've got that same, you know, jockeying for position just in a much smaller geographic area, which also increases the possibility of friction and unintended consequences. To, for sure, when you put that many competing claims in that small an area, especially with that much of the world's commerce going through it. And that's been the way it's been 
for centuries. The South China Sea has been very much a, or the West Philippine Sea for those folks um, in the Philippines, um, has been very much a crossroads of Asia. And that's another tyranny of geography. That geographic factor has been there as long as Asian history has existed. Uh, just, to, uh, just to mention about the West Philippine Sea, South China Sea, terminology. Um, the, the West Philippine Sea is actually a portion of the South China Sea. So you can still call it the South China Sea. So it's okay because there, there's a, there's an executive, uh, there's a law that, or that uh, defines uh, the boundaries of the West Philippine Sea, which actually encompasses uh, the, the, the Philippine, uh, I, um, what do you call it, the Philippine of garrisons there, you know, the, or the Kalayana Island group, you know. Okay. But uh, west of that, it's it it becomes the South China Sea. So it's something like that. But still, for international maritime, you know, it's it's okay. It's a, you can call it the South China Sea in totality. We will. It, but the only the only the, the only the bono contention there is that it's a sea that belongs to the international community. It is not. It, no country recognizes what China says that that those are China's territorial waters. And, and that's why that's what differs, that, that's what makes it different. That all other claimant states, they, they talk about EEZs, you know, because they, they understand that those, those uh, um, land features that are existing in, in the South China Sea are not proper islands and they don't generate territorial waters or they're, they, 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 they don't generate EEZs of their own also, you know. Um, so, but in the case of China, they're maintaining that 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 sea is China's alone. Okay, so now it's 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 a fact that China is existing on an alternate reality. So, if you have that type of situation, you know, then complications happen. You know, that's where uh, because behind this is, of course, you have China also feeding that propaganda to its own people that the sea belongs to them, you know. And when you stir up that type of nationalistic fervor within your country, then the government itself boxes itself into a corner, puts itself into a corner, wherein um, conflict, that's why we have all of these people now talking about conflict. Um, maybe it was a, maybe for me personally, it's a bit dramatic to say within the next two years, you know. Um, uh, if China would learn anything from what's going on in the Ukraine is that, uh, Russian weapons are, well, of course, um, are, I can't use the term, let's start letter C. Russian weapons are worthless uh, in terms of, of capability. I was, about to say, I was supposed to use the C word, but I can't do it. It's, it's a formal a talk. So it's, 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 they're, they're, they're very limited. They're, 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 they, they have limited as compared to Western weaponry. And Chinese weaponry is, is heavily dependent on Russian design. So, if if they had any, if they would be paying attention to what's going on in Ukraine, then that may temper them a bit. But that's for the next few years. I don't know. Uh, a decade from now, you know, especially if uh, things may change. Back to you, Brendan. You're you're too funny, Jose. <laughs> so, but I I appreciate the comments on on both of those and the clarification. Um, but to kind of change gears a little bit, and I know I'm I'm sure Chris is going to want to jump on this one very quickly to kind of move it a little bit forward. So I, I wanted to move away from just the first and the second island chains. And I think I wanted to ask, um, I guess the same general question of uh, how geography plays a significant role, but in this in this example, um, in relation to the Solomon Island chain. If you look at the Solomon Islands, in particularly 19th century trade routes, even back at one, basically once Australia, the British, settled Australia, and you, that, I'll use that term, settled Australia in the 1780s. Um, the Solomon Islands has been a, it, any commerce between Australia and Europe that goes around the Americas or to the Americas goes by the Solomon Islands. And when you look at key points in the, in the Southeast, South Pacific, Southeastern part of that part of the world, um, there's a reason why both the Japanese and the allies ended up fighting at Guadalcanal is because possession of that area, which the Chinese are building bases and, and really kind of making, 
making similar inroads into the, into the country of the Solomon Islands that they are in places like Sri Lanka, which has its own strategic advantages, the places like what Jose is talking about in the Philippines and things like that. There's a reason they're doing that is they can read a map and realize that Guadalcanal was just as strategic an island for power projection in 2023 as it was 80 years ago during the 19th during World War II, starting in 1942 with Henderson Field in the battle, and then of course a base for operations for later campaigns. Um, and you know, so it, to me, there's no surprise that the Chinese are interested in those islands because beyond the first island chain, that's actually a very significant outpost, very significant uh, place of influence for the People's Republic to be exercising for that entire region. Um, particularly when you consider, you know, some of the factors Jose was talking about, about the Philippines also apply when you look at the, the Papuan government, when you look at uh, the government in, in Rabaul in New Britain. Um, when you look at uh, some of the, re you know, what's going on in that region, there's opportunities for the Chinese to be right on the Australian doorstep and create and really influence what, hap what happens, particularly because Australia is a key ally of the United States and Japan. And so, you know, you look at all these potentials, just like the Japanese went into the Solomons to try and pressure Australia. They were never, they were never going to occupy Australia. But the point was, was to, to dominate it, dominate its lines, sea lines of communication and keep it prostrate and basically keep it at arm's length while the United States, the main enemy, was defeated. The Chinese are creating a situation potentially where they could play those same cards that the Japanese tried to play 80 years ago. And that's another thing we talk about. We talk about the tyranny of geography, these geographic factors continue to be continue to be there today well for me also I said that just to add also to what Chris was saying that that um, the Japanese would be uh, if, if you look if you compare the Japanese and the Chinese you know uh, in terms of uh, pushing their influence you know um, the Japanese by virtue of the fact that they were warlike uh, the, they were in a much more disadvantageous position than the Chinese were, are now, you know. Uh, why, for example, um, geography is the same, you know, that Philippines still in the middle and so on and so forth. But there was, there's one big difference, you know, uh, today, there are, there is no, there's no colonial empire, there are none. The, the colonial empires are gone. And why, what, why, why is that so significant? Precisely because the colonial empires, uh, Composed a mono, uh, composed solid blocks against Japan's imperial ambition. Okay, <clears throat> the countries within uh, the, the, the territories within these colonial empires uh, would follow the dictates of capitals far from where uh, the colonies were actually located. So that's why you had ABDA, you know, the ally, the American, British, American, Dutch, British, Australia. Dutch, yeah. and Australian. Yep. Yeah. They were the ones calling the shots here in the Southeast Asian region. Uh, but now, as, as Chris also pointed out, you have governments, you know, existing, you know, independent governments, you know. But these independent governments should not be confused with what appears in Western Europe or Northern Europe or what appears in East Asia. These are governments that are very weak, you know. So the Chinese, the Chinese approach is different. In that aspect, you know, um, it is um, it's it's designed to expand, but it's it, it, it's not outright conquering, but it's a cooptation, and we've seen that what happened there in Sri Lanka, we've seen what what happened almost happened in the Philippines. I don't know now. Again, it's still a question mark. Um, and like what Chris was saying is that they're doing the same thing in in uh, in um, the, the the South Pacific. You know, so the point here is that. They are, they they. That's where they differ. You know, they're using economic um, uh, soft power approaches to establish influence, and not hard power. Because the Japanese tried to go hard power, but they were going hard power against the most industrialized countries in the world. So a big mistake, you know, for the Japanese. So the Chinese have learned, you know, and again, value systems are different. You know, 
um, I was in one meeting with, with uh, it was a bilateral meeting way before when I was still working with government. And then the Americans were in a quandary. The Americans had a problem which because they could not match the Chinese in the matters of dealing, you know, like yeah, how they say uh, in 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 their informal dealings with with um, countries, you know, and what do I and you know exactly what I mean by informal dealings. There's a lot of under the table agreements there, you know, because in the case of the Americans, everything has to go through Congress. Everything is is uh, item uh, is uh, what they call it audited, you know. And Chinese no, it's just like uh, they they will try to co-opt you and they will do it in a very fast uh, and. Uh, um, opportunistic way. So, so those are the differences that we have now between the Chinese method of expansionism of co-opting the first island chain. You know, um, so the the issue now is the way you defend against this new push from uh, from China is is yes, uh, you strengthen the militaries, but more more also equally important is you strengthen institutions. You know. If you don't strengthen institutions, no matter how much you strengthen the military, nothing will happen. They'll still punch through. Back to you, Brandon. Well, and I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more with that um, about the institutions, really. Um, but I, I I can't help myself because of what Chris said on that on that one. And actually, you guys both talked about the alliance, and of course, with the institution with Australia. But Chris perked my ears up when he said key ally, because I always love talking about the Australians and the Japanese, uh, because realistically, the Australians are one of the key uh, uh, um, allies in this conflict or in this future conflict, because thinking about it from kind of the Chinese perspective, uh, the, uh, the South Koreans and the, and the Japanese kind of towards the, the north slash east, uh, the Chinese military, they're thinking we've already got them covered. We have enough assets over there. We're good. And then kind of how you alluded to, the Chinese are now thinking, all right, who is the next ally other than the Philippines uh, that the Chinese have their weakest point? They don't have a lot of uh, capabilities towards the southern portion of the Pacific towards Australia. And that's where they're they're basically doing what they're what they're doing in Africa. I'll touch I'll touch that on that in a second. But building those different kind of bases and locations that they could have some kind of counter to Australian support coming from the South going North. Um, so I, I think that's something that the, that the Chinese are probably doing on that side. And what I mean by what the Chinese are doing in Africa, of course, is even just on like Eastern Africa, which I'm gonna consider that still part of in, uh, the Indo-Pacific because it's right around India. Um, but what the Chinese are still doing in places like Djibouti and in Kenya are saying, all right, to these more underdeveloped nations, all right, you guys don't have a lot of infrastructure. Well, we have millions and billions of dollars that can support that infrastructure that you guys are so wanting. And then once those projects are done, the Chinese government is now saying, all right, pay up. Oh, you can't actually pay because we already know that you can't pay. Well, we're just going to go ahead and stay here. And I think that's one of the things that is the Chinese soft power uh, and power projection like Jose was talking about. It's that soft power at first so then they can power project when a conflict comes out um, that that more hard power. Because if we're really looking at it, we've talked about the three key areas that China really needs to kind of have a stranglehold over. Is if there's a if there's a Chinese naval presence in Djibouti, uh, right around the Red Sea, there's another huge economic location that the United States really depends on. The South China Sea, if they have a huge naval and, and a military presence in the South China Sea. Again, I think it's like a third of the of the world's economy just goes through the South China Sea alone. And then like Chris also was talking about with the Solomons is now if they cut off the ability for the Australians to either send aid to the United States or to the North and the United States can't go through the Solomon Islands to get to, uh, to Australia, then the United States is cut off. And I think that's an, again, how the Chinese are using the tyranny of geography against the United States. and kind of the, the, a lot of the things that and Jose and Chris have been talking about, uh, strengthening the uh, the alliances and also um, building up locations and so that we can force protect, force protect or project before these kinds of things actually occur are what need to happen now. Um, I know I just brought up a lot, so I'll open the floor or I'll move on. 
No, that's that's good. I, I would simply add two points. The first one is they've, they're doing the same, what you described in East Africa, the same process is playing out in Sri Lanka, which I'd point out another geographic point that's still there is when the Japanese bombed, it was known as Ceylon at the time, when they bombed the Royal Navy base and basically knocked it out for a while in early 1942, the Royal Navy had to retreat all the way to the East Coast of Africa and basically ceded the Indian Ocean to the ja Imperial Japanese Navy. Of course, the Japanese then turned around and went back and ended up being defeated at Midway. But that's something to be considered as well. And then actually listening to you talk about the Solomons reminded me, we've actually seen this movie before in 1914, because the Solomons and what is we know as Papua New Guinea were German colonies. And the Australians, it's, it, you know, everybody knows about the Australians and the Anzac, the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps at Gallipoli. They didn't sail until October of 1914, September, October 1914. And the reason for that is partly recruiting the time it took to recruit them. But the other thing is the Australian priority was to secure the German colonies off the northeast coast. And you look at the Australian Army and some of the Australian Navy that does that. And of course, at the time, it was the Royal, all the Royal Navy. Um, you know, that was their first priority, secure the neighborhood and then be able to project elsewhere. You're seeing that same sort of what you're describing to me sounds like that same sort of strategy. The Chinese are, would be forcing the Australians. First, you have to secure the neighborhood. And then you can come to the aid of your allies in more distant locales, if you will. I, I, I to, again, to add is that uh, if we remember what also happened in World War One, you know, is that the uh, the Japanese, well, they they took advantage of the fact that um, you know. Um, they, they, of these German possessions that they took over them, um, especially in the South Pacific area. That's how they got an instant, um, uh, an instant expansion of their empire was precisely to take over quite a number of German Pacific possessions, which they held on. And in the in and in, in the when World War II broke out, they became actually or leading to World War II, they were a cause for concern for even the allies themselves, you know, because the, their Japanese were, had had uh, had uh, begun militarizing these uh, areas, you know. So again, um, the there's a lot you can really learn from history, um, especially in the case of um, what uh, what these great powers have been doing in the region. And I think uh, China is not uh, is not uh, blind to all of this. But like I said a while ago, is that their approach is a bit more sophisticated than pro approaches of other countries. And, and again, it's also aided by the fact that, um, like, for example, in the case of Sri Lanka, you know, what country would, what, what type of government, a, a, a Western government, you know, Western European government, Northern European, or even an East Asian, would, would not agree to that, you know, I mean, really, how, what, what, what was going on in their heads? Fact that um, there was no accountability. You know, and that's why you can say when the Sri Lankan government collapsed, the, the family uh, fled, you know, the, the ruling family fled into its practical ruling family, you know, and that's a danger in many of these uh, com uh, countries that we have here is that it's it's um, the, the powers. These are practically dynasties in power, you know, it's um, and that's why, for example, in the case of the Philippines, you know, uh, the, the political um, life in the Philippines, you know, you have ruling families. And when you have ruling families, then you have the the uh, danger that they become um, they can, they they become uh, uh, they don't answer anymore to the people. You know, impunity becomes the uh, rule of the land, and therefore, when that happens, they become very easy prey now for Chinese interests. You know, as as it uh, as uh, the Chinese strategy is to you know. Um, capture a country by virtue of uh, these loans, as, as what Brandon was talking about, you know, and a country that's led by by a kleptocracy, you know, will be easy pickings for, for that type of strategy. 
Yeah, back to you, Brendan. Well, as much as I want to pile onto all of that, I think we have enough time for, for one more question. Um, so we've been talking about a lot of the tyranny of geography from the United States perspective or from a coalition's perspective. So I guess for the last little bit here, I wanted to talk about the flip side of the coin, the other side. Um, I guess, so uh, continuing on with that idea of the geography of tyranny, instead of on the US or the coalition, uh, what are your guys' opinions or notes on how does this, how does the tyranny of geography actually adversely affect the adversary in this conflict as well? Well, I think it goes back to, you know, what we talked about kind of at the top is that China is surrounded by unfriendly powers in most directions. And if it's not unfriendly powers, it's unfriendly terrain. You know, the forbidding the steppes of Asia, the Himalayas, things like that. Um, oh, not to mention some of the impenetrable jungles of, you know, what Vietnam and Laos and that area. Um, so the, the Chinese are really sort of hemmed in. And this has been the case for centuries. I mean, the Great Wall was built, you know, to try and, and help manage some of the some of the defense you know some of the threats from elsewhere um you know so this is not this is an old problem and it's something that um needs to be borne in mind because the, as the chinese look at how where do they go how do they move um there's there's some limited options and actually if you look again if you look to history and you realize for example, the value of the ports on the East Coast, you know, the Opium Wars, you know, the various colonial, you know, that's the, the treaty concessions, things like that. You, you see the importance of that. But then if you look at where China's trying to go to the West, you know, the old Silk Road, the Belt and Road today. And if you look at they're building an expressway that parallels the old Burma Road because it's a short access to Rangoon, Yangon today. And, you know, that corridor is still potentially viable as a land corridor in and out of the People's Republic of China. Now, it's going to require some cooperation with the Myanmar government, um, and they've got their own stability issues. But that is something that needs to be kept in mind is that and that Burma, just like it was, I called it in, in my book about the China Burma India theater, Burma was the hinge in many ways of the China Burma India kind of quadrant in World War II. It has the potential to do the same thing today, especially if you're starting to look at they're starting to look at the possibility of the Himalayas becoming a major source of conflict between the Indians and uh, the Chinese. You know, getting around that, getting to the, you know, getting to access to the Indian Ocean. Um, you know, you may be looking at very similar strategies as in, you know, dusting off strategies from World War II or earlier. Um, and so that's something that that it, it's sometimes hard to put yourself in the other person's shoes, but it's worth doing that because when you consider that, you consider how far back that that really goes of being kind of being surrounded by enemies. It explains a lot of mentality and explains a lot of you know potential outlook and potential courses of action for the adversaries. It's um. It's like China has this chip on its shoulder, you know, when it, when it, because of the century of humiliation, you know, it feels that it's an aggrieved power. It's a grieved country. It, it, it has, and it, therefore it has a right to do what it has to do, you know, to reclaim its uh, place in the sun. And that's very dangerous thinking, actually, you know, uh, when you have a country with a chip on its shoulder. You know? uh, I remember watching a television, and the, the problem with the Chinese is they're a bit, they're, they're a bit crude in their communication skills, you know. I remember uh, one meeting, uh, one meeting, uh, one meeting, one, one televised meeting where a Chinese delegate was uh, was uh, asked by a reporter about China's rights. Um, and then they said that we have more than a billion people. That's why. He goes like that, you know. I mean, what right do you have? So if a country has a million, it doesn't have rights anymore, you know, things like that, you know. So that, that's the dangerous mentality that the Chinese have, you know. It's a siege mentality. And we all know siege mentalities are bad. Now, um, there was something else that I was going to say here was that uh, the, 
the the um when i was uh, again in a meeting uh, uh, it was a meeting and we were talking about the philippine claim it was a meeting within the philippine government and i was part of a discussion panel and then i said you know what you know we are so afraid of that our island our, our, our possessions can be cut off. But you know, when you think about it, our possessions can actually mess up with the Chinese logistical lines, you know, because we're right in the middle of them also, you know. Uh, so what we need to do is we strengthen this and that and this and that, you know. Of course, I said that um, 10 years ago, nothing happened. But anyway, uh, that's beside the point. But, uh, well, uh, but the thing is that um, I remember also, uh, it was quite recent, not maybe a, two, a year or two years ago, when an American military officer, high-ranking guy, was saying was was quoted in the media by saying that the United States has vast experience in taking islands, you know. So, so he's harking back to the Second World War experience that the American military has vast experience, you know. And he was referring to the Chinese artificial islands also. It's alluding to them that you can you, you can strengthen that, but at the end of the day. You're dead ducks, you know. And and with the Chinese, you know, like I said, they're looking at that. Yes, the Chinese are are spending in many areas, you know, but it's not cohesive, you know. That's the problem that they have, you know. And they, I think they're also aware of that. It's not a it's not a cohesive expansion. They don't have anything of the same of they don't have the same thing that the the, the, the United States with its partners and allies in the region have, which is something that is cohesive. Yeah, they, 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 the partnership between uh, the United States and Korea or the United States and Japan. And um, notice I did say United States, Japan, Korea. But anyway, so that's a different thing altogether. Also, we'll not go into that. Just, so, but, but the thing is that it's that it's that, 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 that bond that these countries have both shared struggle, shared hardship for for more than half a century. Okay? And, and, and that's the thing that China doesn't have. And why am I saying that? Because in a conflict, China's forces can be cut up to pieces. You know, and that's the problem that they have. They, they, their, their military is still in a transition period, you know. It's still in transition, you know. They're, they're, they're creating carriers. Of course, they're creating, but where is the practical expertise in that? None. There's none yet, you know, so they're still learning. So it's a lot of time. And, and again, these surface assets that they will have will all be torn to shreds in the event of a major conflict with, with just the major power, just with the United States alone. And what more if you add um, the assets of the Japanese and the Korea? So Koreans, for, I mean, for example, look at Korea. Korea has an aircraft carrier of its own already. Nobody talks about Korea's aircraft carrier, but you have, right? You, you, you have this ship that looks like an aircraft carrier already. You know, so so those are the things that go. It's the strength that they have, and it's the inability. It's 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 um, it's uh, that's where the difference is. Japan's uh, territorial expansion, it, it was in a better position, in than than the Chinese are now. It had a better military than the Chinese have now. If we're going to look at it from and so those are the disadvantages that the Chinese have. Um, yes, it's it's coming up with African influences, you know. But again, these are tenuous at best, you know. Um, if the United, if if the Western powers or the, the uh, um, are able to undermine the influence and the, the 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 leader falls, then there's going to be an about face. And what happens now to Chinese influence? You know, it it can disappear also. So the Chinese are also aware that it's the problem of sustainability. That's what China has 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 now. So so uh, you're expanding everywhere, but you're 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 all overextended that that's the, that that's the thing that they that's that's a, that's what i can say so back to you brendan i, I honestly don't think that i could have said it better uh because uh, honestly all i was going to what my my point was that i wanted to bring up and and kind of to to take little bits and pieces of what you were saying kind of add my own little swing to it is that you're exactly right the chinese understand that they don't have the global protection, they don't have the projection or protection that the United States has. And so the, my, my little pieces to that is, I think that's also why we see things like the One Belt, One Road initiative with from China is they see that the United States has bases in Europe, in Asia, in Africa, in South America, 
uh, and of course in North America, uh, but the Chinese don't have that. And I think that's why uh, we see Obor and we also see that the Chinese are attempting to build up their naval project, their power, because I think uh, I know it for, for a fact, Chris, uh, Jose and myself, um, we've talked about it before that Indo-PACOM is a naval uh, military theater. It is going, there has to be some kind of naval presence and the Chinese are understanding that they don't have this that that same naval projection that the United States has. Um, but I think I'll, I'll end on that. Um, honestly, gentlemen, I love the, the conversation. I know each of us could probably go for at least two more hours each, uh, but I think we're going to have to come to a close. So I appreciate both of your guys' comments. I'll, I'll open the, up the floor one last time to see if you can encapsulate, I guess, uh, a single point that you'd want to take away from this. Add beer, it'll be a whole day. <laughs> geography is destiny brendan and you see that through asian history and it'll it gives you insight into what the future might be i i can't uh, i can't anymore add to what i all these things that i was saying but but like i said that um history is a, a source of lessons learned that uh, we um, we can look at, but we have to make sure that we're learning the right, the right lessons from them, you know, and um, applying it to the current context right, today, you know. So that's why I say, that's why I kept on saying that I was comparing China and Japan to each other, you know, but pointing out also the differences that they have and the unique ways that they're going around or that the, that the Chinese, for example, are trying to adapt to the new situations now. Oh. Thank you both uh, for both your knowledge, your comments, and for joining me here on this podcast. Uh, so before we sign off, I want to remind everyone that is listening uh, that the views and the opinions stated in this podcast are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense, its components, or any organizations that we work for. Uh, for those listening, I want to thank you for listening to our discussion and supporting the consortium, listening to Vanguard, the Indo-Pacific podcast. I am again, Brendan Donnelly, and if you would like to learn more, please join us again on additional podcasts that are coming up soon, or visit our website at indopacificresearchers.org. Again, thank you for joining us, and good night. <laughs>